Today's episode is brought to you by Death Wish, Inc. For 20 years, Death Wish has been the go-to label for emerging punk and hardcore. That continues today with their recent releases from scene staples and promising newcomers such as Modern Life is War, Greet Death, Chastity, Converge, Frail Body, and more. Get 10% off all Death Wish music and merch in their store using the link deathwishinc.com slash the first ever, which automatically applies the discount and filters the site for only items included. Again, that is 10% off all Death Wish releases and merch when you visit deathwishinc.com slash the first ever. Have you checked out those new Greek death songs? Jesus, that band is good. Start there. This podcast is presented by DistroKid, an incredible service for musicians that helps you upload your songs to all music streaming platforms from iTunes to Spotify and Apple Music, then pays you revenue from your songs all in one place. They've got a really cool new feature called Splits that allows you to add collaborators so you can pay your co-writers and fellow musicians without needing an accountant. To get 30% off your first year's DistroKid subscription, just head to distrokid.com slash VIP slash hard times. Hello and welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Bohm. If this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. My guest this week for episode 90 is the writer and director of the film Duel, which is available this Friday, May 20th on Video On Demand. Uh, It stars Karen Gillan and Aaron Paul, and it's about a woman who opts for a cloning procedure after she receives a terminal diagnosis, but when she recovers, her attempts to have her clone decommissioned fail, leading to a court-mandated duel to the death. I saw this film opening weekend, and I had a great time. I'm a big fan of his film, The Art of Self-Defense, which was the first thing that I saw of his. He also directed a film called Faults, which is absolutely worth seeing. Uh, I've been wanting to talk to Riley for a while. We have a lot of mutual friends, and this was a really good chat. And I want to let you know that there's a bonus episode available right now where Riley answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can hit up the Patreon at patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon to hear that. And depending on the tier that you subscribe to, you can submit questions to upcoming guests. And I have a lot of good ones on the books. There's a Discord channel. There's bonus radio episodes. We're doing a lot of stuff over there. If you want to support the show, it would help out oh so much. And uh, if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this, uh, that would mean a lot too. Leading a kind rating and review is also very helpful, as every podcast tells you. And uh, so, yeah. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Riley Stearns. What's going on, Riley? It's so nice to uh, officially do this. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on this. Yeah, no problem. Um, This is one that I've been looking forward to for a long time. A lot of people who um, have been following along with the podcast has known that uh, this is one of those interviews that I've been uh, talking about, like 
having happen eventually. So um, I'm so thrilled that we're getting to do this. Oh, I didn't realize that you'd been teasing it. So I'm really glad that it happened then too. <laughs> <laughs> not not publicly, but to like to like a core audience, maybe like on our okay. Discord channel. People have been like, oh shit, are you gonna ever get to talk to Riley? And I'm like, well, we've kind of gone back and forth a little bit. We have enough mutual friends that I feel like it's possible. So here we are. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad that I was able to oblige then. <laughs> um, something that I think is awesome is that one of uh there's I feel like in the last couple of years, especially right around the time of the vaccinations, <clears throat> there's key figures that people have in their lives where it's like, oh, yeah, that person was like on the was on the same mission that I was or the whatever with like trying to find the place to get vaccinated. And uh, you had posted, you're like, oh, you know, like, you know, this that worked out for me or whatever. So you were actually the person that helped me and my friend find a place to get vaccinated early on. So thank you for that. I remember I remember you reaching out and being like, look, I'm not trying to blow up your spot or anything, but where did you go? How did it work out? And I wanted people to do it the right way. And I had this like place that a friend of mine told me about where if you lined up and they had extras that day, they didn't want them to go to waste. So it wasn't like you were jumping a line or anything like that. And you ended up getting vaccinated at the exact same time as my producer, Aram, who uh, produced Duel. So you guys met in line, I think, and were the yes. My name got used a lot apparently in that line. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like that was that what you described was exactly it because there there was that line of like, um, obviously, I want to do this the right way. I don't. I'm not. You know, there's people who are like going into low income neighborhoods, and and you know, there's a lot of problems that people were yes, having with doing that. that. Exactly. So with with how you described what you did, I was like, okay, this is the person who I'm gonna I'm gonna bug. So. Uh, you know, what is it, two years later, a year and a half later? Uh, thank you again for uh, for the assistance. Glad we're vaxxed, man. Feels yeah. good. Even <laughs> though I got up... it about a month and a half ago. <laughs> oh. oh, no, did you? I did, but I, I got it uh, when I was in Finland. But uh, for, like I went back for this film festival, but I got really mild symptoms. Uh, okay. And the worst of it was that I lost my taste for a week. So oh, but, food but was came... not fun for... It did come back. It, it was slow, back. but it came back. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've had, I'm sure you do too. I've had friends who have like, now that it's even their taste buds came back, um, some things just are different now. Like I have a friend who's like, coffee just tastes bad to me now, which is like That's such a so bummer. Funny. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not questioning people's experiences, but I wonder how much of this is still a like, uh, in their head sort of thing, like a mm. psychosomatic sort of situation. I think most people really do like have mild symptoms, like things come back or feel normal. But I wonder how many people are feeling things that maybe aren't there. But I, I believe, obviously, if coffee now was a thing you liked <laughs> and now you don't, that feels really legit because yeah, I'm not just sure. giving coffee up. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I would. Yeah. When he told me that, I was like, oh, my God, I feel so bad. That'd be horrible. That's yeah. Terrible Ooh. thing. Um, so, uh, you know, this show's all about first experiences and things like that. But because, um, I know music is such an important part of your life too. Uh, I want to touch on that maybe before we get into, um, awesome. talking about movie stuff and all of that. So, uh, you're from Austin originally, right? Yeah. Specifically Pflugerville, which is just North of Austin, like How far? 15, 20 minutes outside of downtown. You like, I, I would, uh, when I got my driver's license and there wasn't traffic, it would be 20 minutes tops to get to Emo's Austin, which was my favorite venue back when I was growing up. Okay. You've been to the new location, I'm assuming? 
Well, the new location used to be the back room, so it was where all the metal metal bands played. Like, that's where Slipknot played their first Austin show, from what I remember, and uh, that's where, I mean, I played a a set there when I was in this grindcore band, but that's what Emos became, I guess, is the old back room. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, because I never got to play the original. That venue was so cool. Oh, wait, no, I did. I did, Because it had the indoor and outdoor spot. Right, exactly. So that was... Because what year did it close? Because I think we might have played there in 2009. Does it sound like that would have still been there, the original? Sounds about right. I, I was out yeah. of Austin by that point, And I know that it, it happened while I was gone, which was also kind of sad because I didn't get to do like a last hurrah type of thing there. Sure. It was just one of those things where you just heard Emo's closed. They raised the rent. They're putting up something else there instead or whatever it was. But man, that venue ruled. Oh, definitely. Um, I remember, yeah, just like the excitement of being able because I knew it was such a historic room that I was like, oh, shit, I get to, you know, be here and, and experience this. And yeah, uh, the, it's always sad. It's always nice that when a venue gets to at least reopen, but it's always, you know, it's never the same. It's never, the it's same. never, yeah. And that spot is in particular. I mean, even just being able to walk straight out of the club and go onto Sixth Street and you're around just like downtown and everything, whereas back room was more on the east side. And at that point, east side wasn't really an area that people like went and hung out in. So Austin's changed a lot since I've been gone, but, but yeah, I missed that venue and, and a lot of other things have popped up since I've been gone. But, um, uh, yeah, it's still a great city for music, obviously. So when did you actually end up moving out of there? I moved to LA. Uh, I was here the night, like I got into town the night of, uh, uh, December 31st, 2005 and then saw the fireworks saw the switch over and everything that was my first night in la was uh january 1st of 2006 i guess so oh wow okay so you've been out here for a minute i've been here for 16 years i guess that's what it is now yeah 16 years as of january 1st so when you first came out here where did you land like what part of town um i was 19 and the idea of living in hollywood was terrifying so I wanted a little bit more of a small town feel. So I ended up in the Valley first, uh, specifically in Sherman Oaks. There you and go. I, my ex-wife found a guy on Craigslist who had graduated UT and I only went to UT for a year, but he was looking for a roommate to move out to Austin or out of Austin to LA with him. And so we joined forces and got a space together, like a two bedroom, one bath in Sherman Oaks. That was, I think at the time, 1400 a month. Uh, and now was probably, like <laughs> so much more, like 2500 a month maybe or whatever. Uh, but yeah, I was there for a year and then eventually ended up in Toluca Lake for a little bit. And then in, in uh, the neighborhood in Hollywood that I live in now that I almost said, and then I was like, I don't want to out my like spot. I'm sure enough people see me walking around, but like I'm in the Hollywood-ish area. Okay, sure. Yeah. Well, congratulations on not doing what people normally do which is like move near either lax or um to north hollywood thinking that it's hollywood because those are the two yeah. things i feel like a lot of people mistakenly do uh but sure yeah sherman Oaks was okay and i worked at <laughs> i worked at urban outfitters for a few years so oh uh, on ventura well, I, I started at the Burbank location and then okay. they had me open up the Studio City location that you're talking about. So I was I was there for the opening of that. Like I helped uh, load that store in and and everything, which is so funny. I was the housewares team lead. 
So when you wait, so were you working at the Burbank one in like 2000? Wait, you said 2006 is when you came, right? 2006. Yeah. Oh. So like 2006 to 2007, eight or whatever Burbank. And then I moved to the Studio City location. What's funny is I'm I don't know if you remember, there's a store on San Fernando there called Backside Records. So I worked yeah, yeah. at ba- I worked at Backside this the Saturday after I graduated high school until 2005. So we would have Oh, that's funny. So just barely, yeah. Like two blocks away from each other. And I was so broke that I would I would eat the a, a dollar McDonald's hamburger every day because I moved out to LA with $1400 in my bank account. Sure. And uh I ate at that McDonald's every day except for one day a week I would let myself if I didn't pack a lunch I would let myself have a Chipotle burrito or something back when they were like 6 bucks and um yeah, I definitely made that work for a little while, but man, Urban Outfitters paid so poorly. Oh man, did you? So now uh, I don't know if what your theater choices are when you live in LA, but do you have PTSD if you ever go to the sixteen? No, <laughs> the I didn't. I like I, I joined the A list club, the AMC A list thing. Yeah, dude. And and then it it was really nice to kind of re um uh, establish a relationship with Burbank again and hit up all the spots. I, I still haven't been to the one that's like the smallest of the three, but okay. the one in the in the in the mall is great. And then the one, the 16 is is preference usually. Um, but there's a lot of good spots to like grab a beer beforehand with friends or something. So we we were doing that for a while and then uh Omicron I think kind of messed it up again for some of my friends. But yeah, I want to get back to watching more movies in the theater again. Yeah, for sure. Like uh three through me and two of the other guys from my band are from Burbank originally, like born and raised oh, like from there. So uh it's like the total stomping grounds. And yeah, it's funny, like the six, what you're talking about on the other side of the mall there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. that that used to be back in the day, like that was the bougie theater where it's like, oh damn, That's you're so going funny. to the six. Um, but yeah, it's cool. I love that the eight actually shows more independent films. Like I I mean it does. Yeah. And they have the lay flat seats and all of that too, which I do like. So Totally. Yeah. I mean, it was at the, actually, no, it was at the, no, it was at the 16 where I saw Duel. Um, yeah, which I, I think it only like, was playing the 16 in Burbank. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, I was so thrilled that that, you know, was going to end up playing there. Like I, I didn't know how, um, why the, the, the release was going to be for the film. Like I was expecting to just to go to the Lemley here in Glendale cause I, I'm in Glendale and I was like ready to go there. And I saw it was playing there as well, but I was like, Oh shit, is it the AMC? I'm about to fucking, I'm about to lay they back put it on a pretty big screen at the AMC 16 from what I remember. And then it was only there for a week. So or maybe even less than a week. I think some people even got notifications that their tickets that they purchased ahead of time were not going to be honored. They were going to like refund their tickets and that they were putting some other movie on there oh, that was no. making more money. So yeah, we didn't, we didn't get that big of a push theatrically. I don't think my distributor really minds though. Their, their um, parent company is AMC. And so AMC Plus is where it's going to end up uh, for a while. So I think that that's, at the end of the day, that was fine for them. But um, okay. I'm glad some people got to see it in a theater. Yeah. I mean, I'm, any any chance to go to the theater I'm going to take, and especially for to support that film, I've, you know, me and, me and a few friends always ran out to that. Um, quick, music though. So you just mentioned you played in a band. Talk to me about playing in a band. What, what did you do? What was your, what was your thing? You said grindcore band. Well, yeah. So, uh, and it's weird. So I, I was always kind of like the solo, I was a bass player and I was kind of the guy who, cause my f- closest friends 
we would try to start bands that would never work. And I think none of us were good enough at taking the lead and, and really writing. So anytime we would jam, it was always just like chaos and never was fun. And, uh, but the, there, I had a middle school that I went to called Pflugerville Middle School. And then there was a middle school called Parkcrest. And the kids at Parkcrest that were like the, the our version of like kids there uh, that listen to the music that we listen to, that group, they actually were able to get a couple of bands off the ground. And so once we all ended up in high school together, I remember we started sharing each other and going like, oh, they actually know how to write some stuff and everything. Um, and this one band sort of formed called $25 Massacre that was a grindcore band that got pretty popular in Central Texas. And I never recorded with them, but their bass player, Adam, uh, ended up leaving the band at one point, or can't remember what the circumstances were. They, they were still friends with them, but they asked me if I would play some shows with them. So I would, I would do stuff in Central Texas, and anytime they would go on tour and do something further out uh, because of school and work and stuff, I would just like they would. I wouldn't play with them. They would just go without a bass player. But um, wow, I was never really an official member. But there's definitely footage of me somewhere that exists which is so funny. I, and I directed a music video for them that was the first thing I ever tried to make something for. And it's on YouTube and it's awful, but it's, and it's not under my account. Somebody like ripped it and it's as of pixelated course. as can be, but um, <laughs> it was me buying a video camera and going like, I want to direct some stuff. And uh, so you can still see a $25 massacre music video with my name at the end of the credits, which is very funny to me. Um, and it's just like a live show that I pieced together but uh, yeah, I was gonna ask if it was like I was gonna ask if it was like a story. If it was like a storyline no narrative or anything, oh, okay, it was like yeah, literally yeah, yeah. just like recording their show and then trying to like cut. So you you have them record the song once, obviously you know you're gonna do something with, and then everything else is you just saying, okay, this part kind of looks like he's playing that guitar part, but it's a completely different song, that kind of thing. Match up, um, yeah, totally, totally. But I I uh, I was more of like a solo bass player. Like I was super into. Wes Claypool and Victor Wooten and Stanley Clark and like all of the um, kind of flashy, showy, but really solid, fundamentally sound bass players who just happen to be good at also being at the forefront. And, and so I always wanted to play my own stuff and I bought a drum machine and I would play to that. And then I had like six songs worked out and I've only got three of them still somewhere on a hard drive, but uh, I never ended up playing a show. But the goal was was sort of like a one man band thing at one point. I thought I would be able to do that, but I'm glad that that never happened because I, I think it would have been a pretty big failure. But um, I, it's funny that I still have some recordings, though, that I'm able to listen to and go like, eh, I mean, you were kind of figuring some stuff out. That was kind of sure. cool. But yeah. do you feel like that's an itch that you're ever going to scratch? I mean, I still play, but I don't play with the intent of writing. I'm, I've realized that uh, over the years that it was always really hard for me to write music. But the second I started writing scripts, I felt like that came pretty easy, which is funny because I'm so passionate about music and so into it. But I never, I don't know, I never really had that thing where uh, it, it clicked in, in the sense that like, I found the people that I was going to work with or, or tour with or whatever it would be. Um, and as an adult, I've wanted to write music, but I also feel like I've got enough hobbies. And so yeah. I love listening to music and I, I, I obviously do the, uh, the movie thing. And then I, I've been training jujitsu. Uh, I started skateboarding recently, so I saw, yeah. I'll, I'll continue to like noodle around, but I'm not like, I don't have any delusions of grandeur that I'm going to be some touring musician at some point. 
did uh did you ever have the thoughts of trying to score your own stuff whether it's like your shorts or anything like that like was that ever an an idea no because i'm not good enough and i like <laughs> yeah but uh it was always fun. I think the thing that I love about the scoring process is that I can talk to people uh, in a way like a musician would talk. And so I feel like composers feel comfortable talking to me. I feel like even if I don't know exactly what uh, music theory sort of aspect is going to make this this certain thing better or feel more like in line with what I'm uh, that I'm with what I'm looking for, I can say what I'm trying to get out of it, what the feeling is. And, and give an idea and then they can take it and go like, oh, I know what you mean. And then so somebody like Emma Ruth Rundle, I can talk to her in, in a certain way and she's able to go, OK, I know exactly what you're looking for. I'll be back. And then she sends something back and I'm like, oh, my God, that's perfect. So, yeah. right. And that's got to be uh, nice for them, too, because uh, I think nothing so. is wor- Yeah, nothing is probably worse than uh, someone who's not at all musically sound to try to just be like no like more like you know uh moody we'd be like well what the fuck yeah does that and mean? some director friends of mine are very open about the fact that they have to put more faith in their composer because they don't really know how to talk about that sort of thing but i think the ones who have done at least a few movies you learn things especially when you work with the same composer over again uh over and over again it it helps bring out those nuances that you're looking for. And I think people get more comfortable. It's like if you're learning a language and you can kind of speak it, but not really, you're afraid to talk to that person who speaks that language fluently because you feel like you're going to get embarrassed about like saying something wrong. And then after you do it for a little while, you go like, oh no, it's just like anything that you can do to help them. Or even if it's the wrong word, but it gets you into the right sort of trajectory. I think that that's all helpful. So just being able to communicate is important. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, shit. So well, let me uh, let me hit you with the first question that I that I thought I'd ask you, which is um, when you were young, what was the first film that you connected with that, um, you know, I'm sure you've been asked this before, but like excited you in the way of like, oh, shit, this feels like something uh, obtainable or something that like I would like to try my my hat at? A few things come to mind. Uh, first, I'll preface it by saying I grew up in a house that wasn't really a movie-watching house, and so I found it pretty late. I would say that I was probably 17 when I really started watching movies as more than just entertainment, like kind of realizing that there's more going on and that art movies don't have to just be pure popcorn films. They can also be art and stuff. So I found certain things along the way that I responded to. Like I remember watching um, the Steven Spielberg duel, D-U-E-L, uh, on TV one one time. And uh, that movie started as a made-for-TV movie, and eventually they ended up doing a re-release as a theatrical thing. So I watched it with the commercial breaks and all of that that were kind of baked into it and designed. it was designed for. And I remember just being like, this is so great. And I'm just like, this is an older movie, and I kind of like it. It's not even a new movie, and it's it's got more going on than, than a bigger budget thing might. Uh, I don't know. It's just something about that really stuck with me. And then a movie that also stands out as like an early thing before I really started getting into movies was, um, um, oh, Suburbia, um, that was based on uh, a play, and then it's just like kids in a small town and it's them hanging out and a kid comes back to town and like there's some animosity because that person's gotten famous and i just remember also being like i think it was a bogosian play maybe anyway that one really stuck with me and just uh, again going 
there's not a lot happening here in terms of big things. It's just people talking, but I really, really liked that and was like, oh, there's, that's cool. But again, that was before I ever wanted to make anything. I would say that the first thing that I saw that I felt like was attainable and in this, in the line of, um, making me kind of find new things that I hadn't really sought out before was lost in translation. When Sofia Coppola's film came out, I remember watching that on DVD, on a whim, renting it from Blockbuster and being like, Oh, I wonder I, yeah, maybe like, this is cool. I heard good things. It was in an indie section and then watching it and going, Oh wow, this is really special. And I feel like, again, there's not a lot happening, but it's all about all the stuff that's not happening that it, that's more important. And I loved Bill Murray in the film and uh, Scarlett Johansson. And, and I remember watching that one the next morning before I had to turn it back in, it might've been like a two day rental. So maybe I watched it like the next day or whatever it was, but um, I hadn't really done that much. And so that one really stuck with me. And then I was on a mission to find more indies. Like that was, that was the goal, but I didn't know that there were good indies and bad indies. I just assumed (laughs) that every indie was good. And so I started realizing that, Oh wait, like not everything in this sort of low budget space is good. So I learned a lot in that sort of period self like learning. So I didn't, I didn't know about like film sites. I didn't go on those or whatever. So yeah, it was like a lot of different things, but I would say lost in translation was the initial like, uh huh. There, that's that's something there. Sure, and it's interesting that you mentioned suburbia because that would have been the Linklater, uh, the Linklater one, right? He did that. That sounds right. Yeah, he was, yeah. It was Linklater's film, and he had another one called Tape that I remember also being like, "Oh, that could you can make something with just two people, three people in a room," and going, "That's cool." So he he had a couple that actually really influenced me early on. It's cool to hear you reference Linklater for that because that feels very of your generation, considering how many people like Kevin Smith. Um, reference like slacker whereas like that's an early version of that where he yeah. watched that and was like oh this looks this looks obtainable because it's just filming people having conversations and, and i was too young yeah. to fully understand slacker whereas i totally. felt like he was trying more narratively sound things by the time that i got to him uh but like i can so totally look back and see why slacker was so inspirational to people too Absolutely. Absolutely. And then what you're saying about loss in translation makes so much sense too, because again, that's of that era where God, something I was just thinking about when you were saying that is, uh, you know how like there's these movies that come out that, um, like say a movie, like a quiet place where I look at that as like, um, I call it like soft horror or like horror kind of for everybody where like, you know, I feel like that's the perfect kind of movie for like, a 14 year old or a 13 year old to watch and then be like, Oh, like it's not too scary. And now I want to kind of find horror movies on my own. Like it's kind of like family friendly horror. Yeah, exactly. Um, I feel like that was of the era of like maybe garden state where like you would see garden state and you'd be like, wow, this is different than what I'm normally seeing. But then that takes you on a path to find more of the indies of that era. And I feel like, for those people, a lot of them probably found Lost in Translation around that same time and was like, oh, my God, this is what this could really be. And then hopefully found Virgin Suicides and, and all that sort of stuff. Definitely. I, w- I would say like uh, Garden State was definitely something that I watched and probably wasn't like as in love with as some other people. But I really again, it was one of those things where you go, you don't have to like follow a three act structure. And like, <laughs> you can just like, I remember just the younger, more, uh, the, the younger person that I was trying to figure things out and not understanding the like right process to go about something. I got, I, I liked that you could be a little punk rock about it. And 
whatever you think about that movie, it definitely did things differently than movies tended to do at that time. And it's a little like, I don't know, safe and kind of funny to looking back on now, but like, I totally see where I was and why a lot of people liked it. And similarly, something like, uh, it's a little different because I think that the structure's there, but something like Bottle Rocket or something too, looking at early Wes Anderson, I think that a lot of people got influenced and said, I could maybe do this. Uh, I even Bottle Rocket the short, I remember finding that um, on like an early, maybe like Kazaa or something like that, uh, (laughs) that I downloaded and, and going like, oh man, this is the same movie, but it's just shorter. That's cool. You can do that. You can start with a short thing and get a bigger thing out of it. So, yeah. Right. Uh, that's probably going to, I mean, this is probably a question I would have asked in a little bit, but this is a good time to it. Um, because you've made so many shorts and because that's such a common thing that happens with the shorts that you had made, was there ever a motivation to turn one of those into a feature? I never really thought of the shorts as being the way to get to a feature. It was almost more just tonally try to be in the same realm that you want to be. Um, and it's funny because the, my, my short, the cub that it played at Sundance in 2013 is very much in the line with like, uh, in line with dare self-defense and duel my second and third feature, but tonally is definitely more stylized than my first feature faults. And so even though it was in the same realm, I didn't feel like, and I, think I was right that I could get a movie like the cub made as a first feature. So I wanted something that almost bridged that gap a little bit more, but yeah. Uh, so faults ended up being a little bit more grounded, a little less stylized, but still very much its own thing. Um, and I think that there's a through line. You can see how all movies are, all three movies are made by the same person. Um, and, and the cub being part of that as well, I guess with, with uh, as, as like a fourth film, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's so funny looking back on and being like, like, well, I guess not fine. Um, a lot of my friends were looking at, at saying like, how do I get my feature made? I want to make a short. And that was just never on my mind. And then a lot of those people never got to make their feature version of anything. Whereas I didn't put too much stock in it. So I could kind of just go and do the next thing and didn't have, have to have it be literally based off the short or like a lot of people like, um, Damien Chazelle, for example, he and other people I knew were doing things where you would make a scene from a movie as a short. And then that scene could be basically plopped in your feature and work within the context of the feature, even though they ended up reshooting stuff uh, uh, with a new cast or whatever it would be. Like Whiplash started as a scene and then ended up being the exact same thing in the feature, only a different cast. So I, I, yeah, not to say that I never thought about it, but I tended to want to stay more in the realm of try do one thing and then let it be its own thing and then do something else after. Totally, totally. Yeah, I, I interviewed Jim Cummings a couple of weeks ago and like the opening scene of Thunder Road, like that was the short that he Perfect had Perfect example. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Love that scene. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Today's episode is brought to you by Anchorfish Printing. Hey, are you in a band? Do you run a label? Or maybe you just want to make some merch for fun. You should hit up Anchorfish Printing. They've been taking care of bands for over 15 years. I first met the owner, Michael, when my band Touche Amore started, and he was our go-to guy. You can visit what they have to offer over at anchorfishprinting.com. You can hit them up for all your merch needs, whether it's screen printing, embroidery, or maybe you just need some stickers. Mention the first ever podcast and get 10% off your order. Let me, uh, let me hop back to some more first questions. Uh, this is probably a tough one, but do you remember the first movie that you saw in theaters? 
Uh, I don't remember, remember, but the first, like, I think maybe like just the most loose uh, memory of it, but the first movie I ever saw in theaters was Little Mermaid with my aunt Robin. She took me when I was three to go see Little Mermaid. And I think I did okay from what I've been told. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but that, that Little Mermaid was the first one I saw in theaters. Awesome. Um, I'm 35, not to date myself too much, but yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, and rightfully so. I feel like uh, that was the pure era of Disney of Disney cartoons. It makes total sense. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so this is probably this is jumping way ahead from that question. But uh, do do you remember the first time you took a stab at uh, writing a script? Yeah. So there's two answers to that. The first answer would be, I wrote this thing called the Sleeping Room that only made it to like 45 pages. And it was going to be a hangout thing. And so you just like, I had no structure. It was going to just be, we're just going to get in there. We're going to shoot in somebody's apartment. I was probably 18 when I wrote this thing and then just wrote myself into a corner and I couldn't really get out of it. And I couldn't also, it, it didn't work as a feature and it was too long to be a short. So I never did anything with it. But basically these two guys break into a house to sleep in overnight and as the night goes on, they slowly start suffering from carbon monoxide poisoning. Poisoning, And so, like, they're just, like, they don't even understand why they're not <laughs> themselves and why they're, like, vomiting and all this stuff and, uh, and dying. And uh, that was really stupid. It was a dumb, dumb script. But I learned a lot uh, about structuring going in with a plan. And so the first script that actually reached, like, 100 pages or more was this thing called Frame. And it was me ripping off an eternal sunshine sort of thing. Like there was dreams or there were dreams in it. Um, It was uh, two people who would interact in real life, but not very much. But then in the dream world, this like woman would have more uh, of a close interaction with this guy and, and it would blend into reality a bit. But again, that one's so bad. Like I, I talk about my my early scripts that I wrote that nobody will ever read prior to faults, which is like seven scripts uh, about those being me trying to figure out my voice and find who I was as a writer. Um, and I, I each one I was sort of just copying another writer. So I have my uh, like Kaufman script that I was kind of ripping off. I have my Tarantino script that I was kind of ripping off him. I have my like my ex did uh, uh, Scott Pilgrim. And so I was really into the Scott Pilgrim script and I'd read that early on. And so I was ripping off like Michael Bacall and Brian O'Malley and Edgar Wright with one script. And yeah, I went through so many ripoff phases and then finally kind of pinpointed what worked best for me. I feel like that's probably beyond common though, right? I mean, yeah, it's gotta be common in music too. I would imagine like early on, everyone's like, you're trying to copy corn or whatever it is. And then you kind of evolve and you find new things and stuff. But yeah. Um, when you start, like, especially then I'm, I'm sure at this point you're a lot more, not even, I don't maybe focus isn't even the right word, but maybe focused, but whatever it is, like, do you now know before you start a project, like this feels like something I can put my full self into, or do you think of an idea sometimes and think like, Uh, that I don't know that's I don't know if that's a whole movie and can do you like talk yourself out of stuff like that I talk myself out of stuff more than probably anybody I know I feel like (laughs) 
a lot of my friends are good at stockpiling ideas and I think I end up throwing things away if I can even remotely talk myself out of it. So um, if I latch onto an idea and I'm actually going to write the script for it, I've, I've basically not been able to tell myself why I shouldn't do it. And I think that it's, it's good in the sense that it, I, I feel like I'm good at uh, keeping for myself the quality high and it may not be quality for other people, but for me, it's like I'm setting a good bar and, and a good um, like benchmark for what I'm trying to achieve. But I think it can also be a detriment because I think I'm sometimes too quick to throw things out. Sure. Uh, and I, yeah, I can't even imagine that that could be a, a really tough hill for sure. And what about um, when you are writing something, maybe something you got pretty far into and then you hit that block? Like, do you have um, things that you do to help that, that you can come back to it uh, to like overcome that? Or h- how does that play out for you? I think luckily I haven't hit that because I tend to be pretty structured in the way that I write and I plan a lot. Um, I card everything out that I write. So I go through and I write every scene on a card. Um, I structure that out. I make sure that that's sound. And then when I feel good about where that's at, then I go in and I do a more uh, in-depth outline, but then still leave spots for discovery in the script writing process. But what's great about that is that as as I go through the, the script and as I'm writing, I know where I'm at at all times. So I never get to that block sort of point. If I've ever caught myself going down a path that feels maybe wrong, like that happened on faults. There was, I wrote 10 pages one day and then at the end of that day said, I don't think this is right. I think that I'm writing myself into a bad place and it followed the outline, but the outline was pretty sparse in that section. And I think I went down the wrong path and had a character do something that I don't think was helping the movie. And it kind of went down a different area and and I just knew it. I kind of knew it. And so the next day I read it again and I was like, yeah, I think this is wrong. So I just threw out those 10 pages and went back and then had the right path kind of chose. I, I, it was just one of those things where you get to the fork in the road and you accidentally took the wrong step and, and you kind of just walk backwards. Like you still have your breadcrumbs there that you've left for yourself. But um, luckily everything since then has never really gone down that, that same road. Um, but if it does, I think I'm pretty good about being honest with myself that maybe this wasn't the right choice. And I'm not a big rewriter, but um, I think the amount of work I do before I go to script uh, helps that process. Um, let me ask you this, cause this is something I've never thought about until you were giving that answer, which is, um, how much does how you're feeling yourself in a day play into what you're writing? You know what I'm saying? Like if you're, if you find yourself <laughs> funny example, but like hangry, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. or, or maybe you're just, you know, you're bummed out about something that day, or maybe someone, uh, you know. Uh, fucking cut you off in traffic right before you got to where you're going to go right or something like that. Like, do you, do you have to, is, you know, again, corny as it sounds like being sort of a Zen, like mind, uh, like the state of mind to start writing or what, what, how do you think about that? That's a great question. I don't think I've ever really thought about it. I don't think day to day stuff affects me in the way that I write, but uh, like the way that the a scene would come out, for example, or how it would feel. But I do think that obviously little things would maybe seep into it that you're kind of unconsciously uh, doing. I think the bigger thing is that it affects your productivity. And so maybe 
I, I tend to write 10 pages a day or, or whatever, um, something around that, uh, depending on the day. And there may be a day where you go, this just doesn't, it's not feeling fun right now. And so I step away and I'll go like, I wrote duel, the newest movie in San Diego, the first part of the movie in San Diego. And I just got an Airbnb and just got out of LA and did something different. And there was a day where I was just like, I don't, it wasn't even that I was feeling bad. I think I was just tired and so I wrote a few pages and then I said, you know what, I need to, I need to get out for a second. So I walked around and ended up upon uh, a battleship that you could go and take a tour of and like walk around like a gigantic ship. And I was like, I guess I'm going to go on a battleship now. And so I walked around that and I was there for like two hours and then I finished up and I was like, I feel like writing now. So I went back and I started writing and it was great. And so giving myself that um, escape when it feels necessary was important. And I wasn't on a deadline other than I like to write like it's a job when I'm actually writing a script. So I, if anything, I put more pressure on myself to keep a steady schedule and um, sort of page count per day. But there's no outside force, at least not yet, saying you have to turn it in by this or whatever. So uh, I think that that helps when you have days like that. But I've also had deadlines when I used to write for TV where you don't get that uh, um, privilege and you have to just write it and you figure it out. You make it work. That And that kind of, that's perfect. That's a perfect segue because um, it's funny when doing research for anything, whether it's a musician or, 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 or actor whatever there's always the funny thing where it's like how much can i trust this uh (laughs) you know for example imdb so like i saw that uh you wrote on a show called tower prep was that your first time working so that was your was that your first time like working on a tv show or was there something Uh, no i worked that was my first time working as a writer on a tv show but i started so i was at urban outfitters and put in my two weeks notice because i just kind of got fed up they they weren't going to like they wanted me to get promoted to a manager and i was like that sounds like a horrible job being a manager at urban outfitters i'm getting paid just barely more than me right now and i don't i'd have more responsibility no i don't want that i don't want to be here the rest of my life and so they just didn't give me any uh, a, a raise, whereas everyone else got raises. And, and I was like, this is probably not my job anymore. And so I put in two weeks notice, figured I was going to go off and start writing and maybe trying to do a short or something like that and, uh, and figure out the income from somewhere else or another job. And at that exact moment, the showrunner who wrote the movie Final Destination 3 co-wrote that movie. He was going to be taking over as the showrunner for this this TV show. And he and I had a good rapport. And he asked me if I wanted to come be a production assistant on that. So I was a production assistant on Bionic Woman for NBC, which is very funny now in retrospect. I learned a lot about how rooms work, how writers work together, um, dynamics, um, studio network notes, all of that stuff. And I picked up a lot of food for people and coffees. And, uh, after that show got canceled, uh, I made a good enough impression on another EP there. And he brought me on for his next show that he was running as a writer's assistant. So I was more in the room, but I, on occasion I would still go and do the like chores or or errands or whatever it would be, but we would switch off with the other assistants. And then that show got canceled and he kept me on as his personal assistant for a little while. And then after a little while, uh, longer, uh, that original showrunner who had me as a PA asked me if I wanted to be a staff writer, if I had a sample that could get me the job as a staff writer. And I gave him a script uh, for a movie, even though they tend to hire that kind of position off of uh, TV scripts and pilots. But they took a chance and said, 
yeah, we'll, we'll hire you for this. And so I was a staff writer for this Cartoon Network show that was live action, an hour long uh, drama for kids, kind of like X-Men meets Harry Potter, uh, but way less budget for both uh, both of those things. (laughs) And, uh, and that was a great experience. I really, really loved it. Uh, but by the end of it, I also realized that I wanted to be kind of creating my own worlds and directing those worlds as well. And, um, once that show went off the air, I kind of focused on shorts from that point on. And that, yeah. Okay. So, um, the first, so I was like clicking around on YouTube and I, and, uh, I, one of the interviews that I saw, I heard you mention, um, that first short and how you can look back on that and be like, I could tell I was young, you know, like I was going for a horror thing. Um, oh, yeah. and, uh, it's funny. I watched, I watched all your shorts in the last two days and I find it interesting that that first short is like, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different camera angles. It's like very, you know, it it feels very cinematic. Whereas the shorts then going forward were like some, like two of them are just like one camera, just straight Straight on, on. straight on. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Was that a choice of, um, making it easier on yourself or just like, this is the way to just tell the story easier. Like what was the inspiration for that? I was experimenting with how a camera could also play into the tone. And so the straight on stuff and then cutting, not cutting on a line, like in, in most movies that you see that are naturalistic, you have cuts that happen in the middle of dialogue and then it goes to the next person and then it cuts back to them before they finish talking or whatever it is. And, and it's a little bit more free. I really just wanted to implement style over it. And I felt like when you, cut at specific moments, I was finding that I was punctuating a joke a little bit better. And so all of that really just came out of what's the best thing for the humor of this short and the tone of this short. Um, and it happened to be sort of that straight on centered framing, um, very specific, like pace of the cuts that I, that I found was working best for me and, and was just really fun and fulfilling. Um, and I feel like the, the short cask, which I shot in my, uh, garage for, I think I've spent $200 on that whole thing. Um, <laughs> that thing was, was fun to do, but it was so low budget and so just experimental that it really fed into wanting to do something a little bit more serious. And that's when the cub, uh, came around and that, that I think I did a better version of what I wanted to do with cast with the cub. And, and obviously it worked out well because other people tended to like that short and it led to the first feature and everything. But yeah, you look back at Magnificat, that first one, and it's, it's, pretty all over the place it i think it's like i don't think it's horrible but i don't think it's good either and i purposely took it offline i think it's still pretty easy to find if you want to but like i don't like that short very much and i look and see so many issues with it it's like an it's like a demo that gets out like i was gonna say the same thing totally and i mean like i look at i couldn't listen to that godspeed demo ish like first release that just came out a couple of months ago Uh uh, because i know that they don't want that out there and like they tried for so long not to have it out there and i kind of weirdly respected that and know what that feels like so i never listened to it but i i imagine that that's sort of the similar feeling of going like glad it exists and i had that learning experience but it doesn't relate to me or represent me at all if anything it's going to do you a disservice to watch it i think you're going to get stupider if you do totally no i i i uh i hearing you talk about it now hearing you talk about it now like that that's i was saying to myself i was like yeah it's like a band making a demo and then that's for you to hear and you to grow from um yeah 
but uh, on but not everyone gets Stephen Tobolowsky to be on their demo, which is pretty wild. That I don't know. Part of it. In retrospect, why the hell that guy did it? I mean, <laughs> my ex-wife is the lead of that short, and she yeah. reached out to there's a there was a podcast, an early podcast that um, I would listen to here and there uh, with David Chen of Slash Film, and he would often have Steven Toblowski on there to talk, like to tell stories. Cause he's this like great storyteller and he's been on so many projects. And so I remember Mary DM'd uh, David and said, do you think you could put us in touch with Steven? And I guess he said yes. And then Steven uh, read the script and said, yeah, I could do it. And so he had a, it was a day of filming for him. And then in retrospect, just like my first thing that people know about uh, not necessarily a great role <laughs> and in some random apartment in, I want to say that was Koreatown or something like that. We didn't have permission from the other neighbors. So there's like Steven Toblowski in this staircase <laughs> shouting, shouting obscenities, specifically the C word very loudly and nobody questioned it and he didn't question it. He just went for it. But I, I think I learned a really good lesson on that set, which was, he asked for notes and I gave him a very specific note about like, maybe just like close your eyes a little bit more as you're saying this thing. And he goes, yeah, no, I'm asking for like, like what, what are you looking for? What are you trying to feel? I don't want the results. Don't give me the result. Give me like what you're going for. And I had to like get Mary aside and say like, what does he mean? Like, what did I do wrong? And she's like, just, just don't tell them specific things that you want. Say what you're overall trying to achieve and what the feeling is. And that was a really good lesson for working with actors, especially uh, in my early part of my career, was not giving them a result. Instead, working as like a collaborator and saying, let's try it this way or this way. Um, and then in future films, I was able to be a little bit more specific again with certain actors and say, do it exactly like this. And they're like, awesome, cool, I can. But uh, Stephen was great. I still just don't understand why he did the short. <laughs> Well, I mean, what you described is perfect because, yeah, that's it sounds like the a, the perfect example of learning experiences. You learned a lot from that, obviously. Um, but, yeah, when I watched it, I was like, oh, my God, my boy from Groundhog Day just said the, so, the C word. Man, he's screaming. So, not God. what you expect coming from. Not what you expect coming from, like, this joyous, lovely part. Like, man, that guy's in Wild Hogs. <laughs> it's so crazy. Um, but maybe that's why he wanted to do it. He thought that that sure. would be fun or whatever. And I think I reached out to him for – I want to say that he, we – asked him if he would do faults and he immediately was like i'm busy no <laughs> so it didn't work out but uh I, I love chris ellis in the movie so it's it, it's fine either way it's fine i made little notes for for each of the uh the shorts so the one um it's cask has a how you say it uh the yeah, cask. it's a french cask. word i mean i'm acting like i know exactly but it's i call it cask I'm in a band called Touche Amore, which is Italian and French, and it makes no fucking sense. So I love it. <laughs> I'm with you. Um, but anyway, uh, my only note for it was how hard I laughed when uh, when she says, get off my plane. That, that Oh, good. Was, Thank you. Was, that, that's funny. The, yeah, coming up with phrases that would be funny in another language was like the most fun part. I think my favorite one is, and I think the internet's memed it a lot, um, especially Mary's fans, was uh, I will stare at you with my teeth, and then she smiles really big. I like that one a lot too. It's good. Um, yes. The Sandra Manavion. That's the get off my plane. I love that. <laughs> I just, I think I just rewatched Air Force One or something, right? Like right after that. Or, Understandable. Yeah. yeah. As soon as with that, I was like, <laughs> pretty good. Pretty good. Um, good. Thanks. But then, 
so then with the cub uh which i really enjoyed um thanks the uh i saw that yeah exactly did the sundance thing so how was that for you was that like a feeling of like affirmation where it's like oh my god i'm like getting to kind of rub shoulders in this world and like i've been accepted here like how was that experience for you like looking back i mean it was hugely motivating um it was kind of the first time I had people say, Hey, we like what you're doing. And, um, not only that, but we played at, we premiered at the library. I I, premiere is relative. We played a couple of smaller festivals before we got into Sundance. So it premiered technically in 2012 at, um, this very small, uh, festival in Toronto, uh, called shorts that are not pants. And then somebody saw it there and said, uh, hey, I'm a programmer at Fantastic Fest in Austin. Like, you should submit it to them. And I was like, y'all already rejected it. So and it was like, that's insane. And then right after that, I found out that we got into Sundance. So I didn't really miss out on the Fantastic of it all too much, but it was a funny thing to have a programmer be like, this is perfect for our festival. And then you go, hey, somebody at your festival already rejected it. Um, oh. So I was kind of not feeling, I was feeling really good about the short uh, but also had already felt good about shorts that I'd done in the past and then eventually go, it's not connecting with people. I see why. So I think I had this, um, sense of pride in it, but then once I got into Sundance, I felt like, oh my God, people are getting it. Like this is the one, uh, and weirdly thought in my head that it had a good chance of getting into Sundance, even though they get 10,000 submissions a year. For some reason I was pretty, I was feeling pretty good. I was like, for some reason, I think it's going to get in. And in retrospect, that's insane, but it ended up being the case, which is kind of cool. But it played not in a program. It was before a feature called Hell Baby uh, at midnight (laughs) at the library. And I remember thinking, I'm going to record the audio of the audience reaction because I'm just so curious to hear like back what this was like. And I'm so glad I did. I still have the audio of that. And... um, it's the biggest response that we got ever got with the short and it went on to play festivals all around the world. It was so just uproarious. Like Paul Shear was sitting in front of me and I didn't know him then. And I know him now, which is funny. And you can hear him cackling the whole time. And I was just like on cloud nine felt so, so great. And then as the festival goes on, you go, nobody cares about, uh, cause I, I came in thinking, okay, I've got the idea for faults. I've got it outlined. Maybe somebody will want to talk about features. It ended up just being more about the short. And I I kind of resigned myself that, okay, well, this is cool, but back to the drawing board, back to starting on the next thing. And then at the end of the festival, Keith and Jess Calder at Snoot Entertainment uh, reached out and said that they saw the film and that they would love to meet back in LA and talk in a couple of weeks about other ideas that I had maybe for like a feature or something. And so it ended up being a fruitful experience at Sundance, regardless of the fact that I think just going to a festival like that and being around other directors and having the experience of showing your thing live to a bunch of people, regardless of that, uh, that aside, having come out of the festival and then met people who actually could make my movie and who ended up actually making the movie. Um, yeah, it was, it was a life-changing experience. Oh, that's incredible. Um, yeah. And I saw like Vice was involved with it too. Was that just like a, did you submit that to them? And then they like, how did, no, yeah, they, they came on after my, my manager set me up with them and said that they are releasing, uh, at that point they were releasing shorts on their YouTube page. Okay. So he goes, I got you a thousand dollars. Vice would have a three-year exclusive, uh, for online screening and they'll let you keep it on your Vimeo too. And I go, 
awesome. <laughs> so I I only lost when well, I guess I lost is relative because I did a Kickstarter for the Cub and I think we made five thousand dollars for the Kickstarter and so it ended up being four thousand <laughs> was the the like lo- like loss or whatever. Um, but they, yeah, they, they were p- programming some really interesting shorts at that time. And then they would also do an interview with you. That was the first time I ever did an interview and actually talked about something. And I feel like it, it's very obvious that it was the first time I've ever been interviewed <laughs> about something sure, while watching yeah. that too. And, um, uh, and then what was funny about the vice of it all was that in the comments, it was just like literally every comment saying, this is the worst piece of shit I've ever seen. Fuck vice. Vice sucks. You guys make the worst shorts. And I'm like, they didn't touch it. Like they, they just right. are programming it. But uh, people, people hate that website for some. <laughs> I mean, right. for some reasons, I, I get. But like, they, yeah. they're shitting on some 26 year old make, filmmaker's film and saying Vice like makes was the worst stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't. They, they didn't do anything. Yeah, yeah. It was just, they just gave, they It just was a good learning experience. Oh, totally, totally. Um, so then, when you when you ended up doing the first feature. Um, forgive me for not having the timeline right in front of me, but like how much of a, how much of a gap was there between um, the cub and then faults getting made? Uh, I came back and wrote faults, uh, started faults the day after I got back from Sundance, uh, wrote it in two weeks and then pitched it to Keith and Jess at snoot at a like lunch that we had and gave them the script three days later. And then a week or so later, they said that they wanted to make it. And then, so that was all in the span of like February, into February, maybe they agreed that they were going to make it. And then we were uh, shooting the movie like six months later. So wow. it was fast, really, really yeah, fast, but really happy that it ended up being that fast because sometimes things get stalled if you wait too long or another movie comes around or the weather changes or whatever it is, you lose an actor. Um, so we were really fortunate that they not only wanted to make it, but they wanted to make it right away. Um, um, I think at one point they, they were making the guest around the same time as us. And at one point they were going to make ours before the guest. And I want to say that we're having some casting issues with some of the like side characters. So they ended up going off and making the guest in New Mexico. And then what was really, Oh, we were trying to find our lead actor. And uh, so they went off and made the guest. And then from set sent me a photo of Leland Orser um, from behind the director's monitors. And I was like, Oh yeah, he's our lead. Like that would be, he would be perfect. And so we cast him based off of the fact that the guest happened. So it all worked out for a reason. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I love the casting of him. I feel like I can't think of another actor who um, captures a freak out more than that guy. Cause it's like anyone who's seen seven knows the freak out. Anyone who's seen man, that specific freak out and the alien three. yeah, is it three no. or four? What, what? It's four. Four. It's four. Four, because yeah. it's the it's uh, three is Finchers. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Four is uh, the homily director. Uh, I can't exactly. Say his name. Yeah. Exactly. Jean yeah. Jean Luc something. Um. Anyway. Yeah. If I had um, it in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, again, guy with the French band name doesn't can't say it off the top of his head. <laughs> um. But yeah. Uh. His exactly his freak out in that when he learns that the alien is inside of him is is uh the same level he just brings it up to that level so yeah he's such a fun character actor to always see appear in something um i actually only uh saw saw faults for the first time um earlier this year uh and i really enjoyed it i thought it was i thought it was really really fun um and dark and i was curious if uh when you were writing that like did you have any sort of like connection to cult religious like that type of thing like maybe even 
not to assume, but like growing up in, in Texas where religion is a lot more <laughs> intense. Um, like yeah. did any of that play into the inspiration for making that? I wish I had a more interesting story, but no, I just, I, I knew I wanted to do a cult movie. And then around the time that I was brainstorming ideas for a feature script that would pertain to cults, uh, Martha Marcy May Marlene came out, Sound of My Voice came out, um, several things in that sort of space. And so instead of focusing on the cult itself, I, I thought, well, maybe let's let's look at the deprogramming aspect of it. And that's when I really kind of was off to the races. So I had this this initial idea for a, a man is deprogramming this, this girl for her parents and then came up with the idea, not to spoil anything, that where the movie would end. And then I was like, okay, that's the movie. And so that one really felt like it came pretty easily once I got that initial sort of idea for it. Um, but, but yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I was always fascinated with cults when I was growing up, but no specific stories of me. Like my parents aren't religious. I told my mom I was, when I was three, that I didn't believe in God. And she was like, <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, what, like, don't, don't forget to brush your teeth, like that kind of thing. Right. And yeah. so it, it wasn't really a, pre- a religious pressure filled family at all. Um, but I, I have always been fascinated by people who control others and um, specifically through religious sort of means and, and thought that that could be an interesting space for a first feature. And I really liked that with the deprogramming aspect, it allowed me to shoot something at the, at one point I thought, well, I need to be able to write this to take place in um, a space that I could foreseeably shoot in on my own and produce on my own, even if I don't have a production company involved. And so the idea of having it take place in one or two motel rooms uh, was always there too. But I'm really glad that I didn't have to produce this on my own. Um, and yeah, got some good help there. I mean, you you have such a, an amazing ability to um, make the most out of uh, limited environments. You know what I'm saying? Where it's like, yeah, it's like, seems, how, and how, how many days, how long was that that shoot? Faults, I think once it was finished, ended up being 18. Um, okay. We had a pre-light day in there. So maybe you could say 19 where uh, in the middle of the shoot when we switched to our soundstage that we built the motel room sets on. Because uh, I don't think a lot of people realize that, but we did actually have a soundstage that we shot on for that. Oh, interesting. We uh, were able to get an incredible deal because they wanted more indie productions to shoot in this one facility in Compton. And so we got a really great deal. We built our soundstage, our sets on there. But my DP wanted a day to come in and pre-light everything so that we wouldn't have to literally light everything every time we came in. It's all set in stone and then embellish here and there. So I think it was like 19 technically uh, with a day in the middle where I was able to kind of relax and, and go visit the set and see how things were looking. And then we got rid of a day at the end. So yeah, it would say 19. And then um, the last day we were able to also put the talk show scene that we taped for the movie where uh, Ansel is interviewing the, um, this former uh, uh, suicide cult member um, or I guess the, the cult itself commits suicide and she leaves before that happens. Uh, we sh- were planning on doing that after production, like at another time. And we were able to squeeze that up and get it on the last day. So we shot everything uh, in those, in those 18 days. Yeah. How hard is it? This is uh so much of the show is like, you know, my, my nerd brain being excited, talking to people who do things that I'm fascinated by. Cause I'm like such a huge film person. So, um, sometimes my questions come off a very, very, very infantile. So this is like an infantile question. Um, 
when you're especially this is your first feature so when it comes to like storyboarding for it is it hard to shoot the film out of order like is that a difficult thing to do or do you kind of put them in order like how does that work for you well, I don't storyboard. The only thing I've really storyboarded was the opening action scene of Duel. Um, and even then, it's just rudimentary. But uh, on faults, I, I shot listed everything pretty, again, pretty um, loosely, but with a dedicated plan. So you come in with an idea for maybe the scene's going to have nine different shots. And then you get there and you start going, well, what's the most important one? Let's get the, the wide first. Then we go in and we're going to punch in on Ansel and we're going to punch in on Claire. Oh, this is going a little longer than I anticipated. Maybe we can get this shot of their midsection when she pulls a, a necklace out or whatever. And then we might be able to get a shot of his feet that we still need. But then everything that was after that, let's like lose. And that's fine. But you're, you're always prioritizing what, what do I have to have for the scene to go? And what is something that you would really like to have, but if you can't get, it's okay. Um, and you luckily with scenes, you're tending not to shoot them out of order. So I feel like you can always keep track of what's happening in the scene, but then there is the challenge of the overall film not being in continuity always, uh, on faults. We were lucky that for the most part, we, once we got into the motel set, we were in, uh, we were in continuity or, uh, um, I guess that, that word works. Uh, we were uh, <laughs> shooting in order, but, um, but yeah, I, I think it was, just one of those things where you, you know, like, because I write my stuff too, I know where we are at every moment. And I knew kind of when things were going to get a little weirder and we we're going to try this camera move. Um, but yeah, it's not as challenging as you would think, but it's just something that you always have to be aware of. And you have more people around you that also care about that and are, are aware of it too. So having a really good script supervisor or uh, like a scripty on set who gets the continuity of everything. Um, the actors always are asking questions and it helps refresh you. Sometimes they can remind you of something that your character, the character is going to do that you forgot about in a weird way. Like, and you go, Oh my God, I'm so glad they said that. But I, I think if you lean on enough people on set, it's, it's not that big of an issue. Okay. Are you pretty good at, at like giving up control in those situations? Like, um, I, I, I just put myself in your shoes where I'd be like, like, I, I don't know that I'd fully be able to trust other people around me to, to make sure everything is right. You know what I'm saying? Even though that's what they are there for. Like, yeah. like, is that, was, was that ever a challenge for you to like, tr be able to trust everybody else to make sure this goal is accomplished? Weirdly, no, because I'd done a couple of, or I'd done a few shorts by that point where you learn that people do have your best interest at heart and that they're there for a reason. And if they're not there for the right reason, you can tell. And so you don't lean on that person as much, but everyone, I, I just kind of, yeah, you, you trust the script that you had written. You trust, like I always say that, um, the writer version of me, I have to be very protective of what the writer decided because when you're sitting in a room and you're writing this thing for a few weeks at a time, and you've been thinking about it for upwards of a couple of years, you know why something is a certain way in that script and you understand why it can't be another way. And on set, very often you, you go, oh, what about this idea? And you think about switching something up and inevitably you're fucking up what the writer had already thought about and said, well, I can't do it that way because this happens or that happens later. And so that would mess up that plot point. And so very, very early on, I realized that I had to trust the script. Um, 
But in terms of continuity, like just trusting that everyone else around you is catching is some things that you're not catching. Uh, you're so much on your plate as a director. I think that if you don't relinquish some sense of control and some sense of other people have my back, then you're going to, you're going to pay. Uh, and totally. there are some directors who are able to keep it all ju- like a million plates spinning at once. But I think most of us really lean on the crew that we trust. Totally, totally. Um, you answered uh, a question uh, a second ago that I had on here for a first experience for uh, for the short uh, for the Cub. But I was curious. I wrote, uh, "What was it like the first time watching a fe- watching your first feature with an audience? Was that nerve wracking? Was it exciting? What What do you remember?" Um, I was. We did a director screening of uh, an early cut. I mean, it was it was technically my director's cut, which director's cut doesn't mean that you're like this, especially now. It doesn't mean that I, I'm finished. It just means like, okay, I'm ready for people to start watching it. I'm ready for producers to start giving notes. Um, and usually with a contract, you have uh, a dedicated amount of time to do your director's cut, like 10 weeks uh, if you're DGA or at least the, the contract is DGA uh, based on, but, uh, we, so we did our director's cut screening for a group of filmmakers like David Lowry was in there, Evan Katz, who did cheap thrills, um, some people that Keith and Jess had worked with in the past and like a bunch of really talented people and people who also don't work in film too. Cause you want some other perspectives, uh, uh, or maybe not, not that they don't work in film, but they're not like the director or whatever it is, some other editors and stuff. But, uh, I remember my editor and I, it was her first feature too, that she was the solo editor on. We both went into it going like, they're not going to come up with a single thing that makes this better. This thing is so perfect. We were patting ourselves on the back. We were just so sure that they were going to love it. And then you're sitting in that room and there's this thing that you feel when you watch something for the first time uh, with other people where you go, oh, I feel the air. I feel like the silence, that long take that you did that you thought had to be that certain way. All of a sudden you go, oh, that's too long. <laughs> like you, you get to feel the stuff that isn't working so much more than when you're in an edit. And even watching it with like one other person that can happen. But with a room full of people, it sucks the energy so fast when something isn't working. And so we knew that there were some things that needed to be fixed, but also then sitting afterwards and listening to people critique the movie and give it notes and talk about why they didn't like the movie even, that was really hard in the beginning. But I've gotten to where I get a lot of value out of that. And even if you have somebody who says that they don't like something, or don't like an element of your movie, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're wrong in keeping it this way. But I think there's value in knowing that that's how somebody's going to re- react to it. And if they reacted to it, there are going to be other people who watch it down the line who are going to react in that exact same way. So you have to be prepared and say, this is a conscious decision. People aren't going to necessarily always love this part, but I think that it's the way that we need to go. And I think that I've gotten stronger at trusting that um, as I've gone forward while still liking to know what isn't working for some people. Wow. That's a, what you were describing, it was like, it made me feel like when you're, when you have a favorite movie and you're showing it to somebody for the first time and there's like the part that you think is so funny and and then you're like, you're kind of like watching them from the side of your eye and then they don't react. And then you're like, oh. And so I imagine that's like the most amplified version of that and the amount I mean, of thick skin that you have to have to also go forward. I applaud you for 
or that experience. Yeah, it's, I'm glad that I can take that kind of criticism and just go, that's their opinion. And like, sometimes they're right. And sometimes like, they're not necessarily wrong. It's just like, I feel strongly enough about this that I'm going to keep it this certain way, but not to always like go back to the music of it. But I would imagine that if you sit and you played like an all pre-mixed version of your record and you sat and listened in a room full of people. And a lot of them are people you don't know and you don't know, and they don't know your band and they're listening to this record for the first time with you. And then afterwards they get to go, I didn't like it. <laughs> it's a funny feeling. Yeah. And then they get to tell you, they get to go like, well, I mean, why don't you use a different pedal right there? Or <laughs> why don't you like take out the drums in that section? I feel like it'd be better. And you're going like, no, there's no yeah. way. But everyone thinks that they're an expert in those moments. When you tell people, I want your notes, they're going to give you the, you the notes and they may not like be the person that you want to get notes from, but at least you're hearing something that I think you need to hear. Totally. It's that outside the box thing. It's funny. I think when you were just saying that, I was like, I think my version of that is like playing a friend, like a demo of maybe a new song. And while they're listening to it, they start texting. You're like, Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Imagine you're showing that friend and then three of their friends that they invited that you don't know at all. And they all start texting. Yeah. 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 Or, and, or afterwards you give them a, a sheet of paper that has all these very like dumb questions on it about like, who's your, what's your favorite part in the song? Um, right. What is your least favorite part in the song? Everything's so leading and so right. it's like, why don't you like this movie? And it's <sighs> telling people to say, well, I guess I, they, I guess I don't like it because of this reason. Instead of saying, what do you love about the movie or what, what's working for you? That kind of stuff is more um, constructive. Uh, <laughs> and then literally saying in it, like, would you give this one, two, three, four or five stars? And then reading those things later on and it having one circled. <sighs> um, a valuable thing that my producer on faults, uh, told me, which I've used on every single thing after is that with those sheets of paper that everyone fills out at these test screenings, if somebody gives you a, a five stars, you throw those papers away because they, nothing in their notes is going to make it better for them. They like, we try to be pretty obvious about like, if you don't think this is a five-star movie, don't put five stars down. Cause that doesn't help us. But if somebody puts five stars, we throw those away by that same token, if you if somebody gives it one star, we throw those away. Because anybody who's in the one star phase is never going to like your movie, no matter what you do to it. We want the two to four. That's what we're always looking at. And so I always, I mean, hopefully not enough people listen to this that hopefully we'll go to a future screening or whatever and then kind of subvert the system that way. But yeah, you don't get any value from the ones or fives. It's That's always interesting. Yeah, my buddy and I go to so many like the early screenings, like like uh, at AMC more often than you know more oh, often yeah. than not, and yeah. and you get you get the thing after you know that asks you to fill it out, and it's oh you know, and it's like if you dislike something, they want to know every detail about about what you didn't like about it, kind of a thing, and yeah, that's that's interesting to hear it from, and makes total sense. So uh, with the art of self defense, um, what did what do you think you learned from faults like going into that movie? Like, did you have um, was there a little more comfort with you going into making the second feature or was there like a whole new string of things to learn? I mean, in personal life, so many things are changing. I was going through a divorce at that time. So I, I think what was really valuable about that movie experience was getting to go and live in a world and go to like summer camp for several months in another state and just really bury my head and go 
I'm going to make something and I'm going to do something that's different than real life. And so I think that that was a specific point in my life. And I think that that movie benefits from it in some ways and probably uh, loses some things in other ways. But I, I appreciate where I was there. And I, I think that that's interesting and, and worth mentioning. Uh, from faults, from a technical standpoint, from faults to self-defense, it had been a few years uh, since I was able to make something. So I hadn't been practicing as a director. Like I didn't make a short between that. I, I'm, I haven't directed any commercials. I hadn't made a music video or anything like that. So it was all back to the, like, like thrown back into it. And the first day, I think I was a little anxious to get too many things. And we had a very, very busy day. And I think I overshot and then ended up cutting a bunch of it in the edit anyway. So I, I learned a lot that first day back and, and kind of said, okay, relax. Like, where are you? Where Where is this? Don't push yourself too hard. I think I had a similar thing that I was talking about earlier where I'd remind myself that you go in every day and you say, with this scene, what's the most important thing? And just check off the boxes and you can work your way down the list. And at a certain point, you're not going to get everything and that's okay. Um, The main, main thing that I took away from faults was that I could do it. And that's a really like basic answer, but it's so valuable going forward. I went into faults being so afraid and going like, what if I fuck this up? And what if they lose money? And what if everyone hates this thing? And I think coming out of it, I, I realized, oh, I do, I can do this. And I do like the movie that, and everyone seems to be happy with the sale of it and, and all that. And it was well-received. So going into self-defense, I think I was able to trust that I could do it. Um, also, not even just in the sense of creatively, but in the sense of being able to physically uh, keep up with the demands. Because it's not, it's not necessarily easy. You're doing 12-hour days. Um, you're constantly using your mind everyone is constantly coming up and asking you questions that you always have to have an answer for. Even if you don't know in that moment, you've got to give them something because the the worst thing that you can do is be noncommittal to something. I, I think it's important to just give people at least your gut instinct of what they need to be doing. Um, it takes a lot out of you. So I think that going into faults, I also just trusted that physically I could do it too. So sure. a lot of like little things, but I think that that was probably the biggest element was just trusting the process. And you guys filmed that in, did I read Kentucky? Louisville, Kentucky, or as like, I think the first day I showed up, I said Louisville and some Louisville Kentucky person yeah. was like, yeah, it's, it's Louisville. Louisville like, you basically, yeah. like the way I describe it is that you pretend you have a bunch of marbles in your mouth and yes. as you say the word, they're going to fall out. So you go Louisville. Louisville. The yeah, weirder exactly. you say it, the worse you say it, the more they're like, oh, cool. Yeah. This person gets it. <laughs> this person's a local. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's a cool, that's a cool fucking town though. I like, yeah, I had fun there. Yeah. Uh, I haven't been there in a, in a minute, but every time I've ever been there, like it's got, it's like a hip town, you know, it's like, it, it's got Super all the hip. things you want. Yeah. Good food. It, cool um, theaters. Yeah. Yeah. And it felt like a baby Austin in some ways, the kind of like liberal uh, city in a state that's maybe a little bit leans a little bit more conservative. Uh, everyone around us is cool. There was good food, um, bourbon, obviously like I, I had a good time when I was there. So what was, what brought you there? Was it a budget situation? Was it a, like, like why, why Kentucky? My producer, Andrew Korshak, uh, and his company NQ had made a movie there the previous year called The Clove Hitch Killer with almost okay, the same yeah. crew yeah. that we ended up having on self-defense. And he 
uh, was able to take advantage of a tax break that they have. It, it had an, they had an incentive there in Louisville that um, was very uh, conducive to shooting a movie of that budget, um, which I think I can probably talk about it now. It's been so many years, but it was a $1.5 million budget that I think a lot of people think we had more than we had, but we made it work. Um, definitely could have used more, but the fact that the movie looks and feels as good as it does with what we had, I'm, I'm very, very proud of. But uh, we, I basically told him I could shoot this anywhere um, that has a small town vibe to it and has that strip mall sort of feel and everything. So when he said Louisville, Kentucky, and he had a good experience there, he had crew that had a good experience there, I was fully on board. I said, yep, tell me when to fly out and I'll be there. So Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, the few things I've read, written down here. Uh, one of the things that I uh, that I appreciated was um, obviously full of hell, who are mutual friends between the two between uh, between us. But um, asterisk as like the last oh, little yeah. the last little bit where I was like five like, second I, song. Yeah, I heard that. I was like, wait, I know, I know that. And then I looked it up. I was like, did that? How did that? Did you are you like were you like a fan of that band? Do you have that record? And like you thought of it, like how did you decide on that quick five second bit at the end? Well, it wasn't originally in the movie until we were in the color process. Okay. Um, so I was a huge fan of Asterisk. I was a huge fan of like any band that was on three one G basically totally. um, growing up, and so and also like Gabe Serbian um, was a huge, yeah. huge like influence in terms of just music that I loved. And, and so, yeah, everything that was on 3.1G was amazing. And I, I remember the way that I found a lot of music back then was just going on to band or sorry, uh, labels websites and then clicking through every sample of every band. And uh -huh. I got to asterisk and I was just like, Oh my God. Cause I was a big grindcore fan and like sure. I love all kinds of stuff, but I, I just specifically loved their stuff. And I, there was this one song of theirs that I learned on guitar kind of taught myself, or I guess on bass and, uh, was obsessed with that. And I loved the, all of like, they released like 40 tracks on one compilation at one point. Anyway, huge fan of them. Uh, we're in the color process and my producer, Andrew, who's also a fan of metal said something like, it'd be cool if we did a like death metal logo for self-defense as like the end credit. And I go, that's actually a really good idea. Why didn't yeah. I think of that? Like, that's a great idea. So my DP Mike made the logo that we use in the movie while we were coloring. He was like working on that as well. And then when I, when we had that idea, I was like, well, I wonder if we could put like a, like one of those five second grindcore songs over it. And I started looking through everything. And because of the way that the movie talks about masculinity and, and like kind of, I don't know, um, as a comment on my feelings of not being as much of a man, maybe when I wrote it and like society's expectations of me. Uh, I loved that asterisk song man eater was five seconds long and also was called man eater. And I yeah. just, for some reason was like, that's kind of cool. And so I put it over that. I was like, that's awesome. I think that works really well. Andrew reached out to, um, I want to say that he reached out to, oh, why am I blanking on it? Uh, who, the bass player of the Locust, Justin. why am I blanking on it? Justin. Justin. He reached out yeah. to Justin, like yeah. personally, uh, blind, and said, can we use this one track? Justin was super cool. He was like, let me ask the band. But yeah, if, if, if you use it, I think it's like, I think we gave him 500 bucks for it. And the band was super cool about it. 
And then it was in the movie. So yeah. Asterisk is in it, Full of Hell's in it. There's a seven-second uh, clip of a Vow song in it when uh, the guy pulls up in a truck and he's blasting metal. Uh, yeah. I love that we were able to pepper those things in there. I wanted to do more stuff down the line, but um, I don't want it to feel like played out that we keep using like metal songs. But it's fun to put friends in, in the movies. Yeah, I, I'm sure it's hard to I'm sure it's hard to even restrain yourself from doing that when it's like s- such a big part of your life, you know? It is, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, there, was, there was like, um, at a time when we were doing a bunch of press for a record, I did like one of those, like go to a record store, pick, pick out records or whatever you talk or talk about records. And I pulled out the asterisk record. And I said, like, I'll give anyone a dollar if you could listen to this whole thing in full. Like, kind That's of a thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so, so when I saw that that was on there, I was like, respect, because that is like one of the most abrasive records. Like, I love that seriously. album so much. Like, I love that they do a queen cover that's really rad. I love that the the syntax of something is the one that I learned, like taught myself, and it's these tritones. And I would play that as a warm up. Uh, but I listen <laughs> to that thing all the way through, and I have it on vinyl too. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's it's cool. It's like the gray cover with the like little punch out thing. Little yeah. punch out thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I also whoever had it before me played the fuck out of it because it is poppy as hell. I've cleaned it and everything, and it's still somebody really loved that album, which I love or took horrible it. care of it. Yeah, oh, that, I think they still have it because they also have that split with Jenny uh, Piccolo, right? Yeah, I don't have, uh, but I think that has some of the tracks on this because this is almost like a compilation of all the things that they released over those years. So, yeah, right. I think it's it's somewhere in here. I, I'm sure I have. Anyway, um, some <laughs> other some other quick notes I made though was. Um, because so much of the comedy in it is like in that film is like so direct, you know, it's like it's it's line said very straight. And then that's where the comedy is found. And I'm curious if um, if for you, do you think that comedy beats happen in the editing process or like how, how do you like how do, how do you think about that? I think going back to what I was talking about with the cub and cask, I learned that that can help. But sure. at the end of the day, the actors are who are really doing it. Yeah. And um, you can manipulate performance and everything, but if somebody doesn't deliver something in the right way, so with self-defense, for example, the goal was always you can't say these lines as if they're, like you can't wink to the audience, like your character can't know that they're funny because then it's not funny anymore. It was always you have to be sure that these are just like normal things for you to say. And you have to be uh, willing to not sell them as a joke. And so in the beginning, it was like, like, for example, there was a a day where Alessandro, I think it might have been his first day. and He was great. Oh, it wasn't the first day. It was was a little later on. Uh, He was so funny and he got everything. But like one one moment, he, he smacked Jesse Eisenberg on the butt after he gave him his promotion. And the crew lost it once I called cut. Like everyone like was cracking up. It was very funny. And then I had to go over and say, I know you just heard everyone laugh, but this time we can't do that because it doesn't work in the context of the movie. Totally. So it's it's trusting sometimes that even though something works on set, you know what the overall tightrope walk is that you're doing and you have all these things that you're balancing. And it, I was like, well, at least I have it. If it did work, cool. But I knew that I couldn't just rely on the laughs that were in the room. I had to trust that I needed something a little bit more subdued. Right that makes total sense this was and this was the first movie of yours that i saw and i saw it uh at the eight the inside the mall theater uh awesome. with, with some friends had the best time and i really really loved it 
and I rewatched it last night in preparation for this and a note that I made. Um, so there's a great interview with uh, Bill Hader on the show, the rewatchables. I don't know if you've ever listened to that podcast. I haven't, um, no. so it's, it's on the ringer network. Um, and uh, it's like Sean Fennessy does it. I know you've done an interview with Sean Fennessy when you were promoting this film. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. uh, Bill Hader talks about a thing that he loves about the Coens is how with something so subtle in a, in a shot, it can tell you the whole story. Um, even if it's fun, it, whether it's funny or dramatic or whatever, without saying any words, just something that's in the shot that happens. And um, a, one of the hardest laughs I feel like I had rewatching the movie was when Jesse Eisenberg is at his desk and there's just the boobs on his screen. You know what I'm saying? And the boss comes over. It's like the fact that he does not give a fuck. He's, he feels like that's an okay thing to do at work. Like it is. And it's obviously like the toxic masculinity is like ramped up. It's telling you everything you need to know about where he is in that, in his life in that moment. And I just thought it was the funniest, funniest thing, especially I mean, on the rewatch. I appreciate that. I, I think that that's a moment too, where that shot benefits from the fact that it, you've the very first shot that you see in that in that scene is Jesse on Jesse's face learning German, and then when the walk, boss walks up, you turn around, and you see the opposite side, and all of a sudden you get a sense of what he's also doing, and that he's got <laughs> these boobs on the screen. And so I don't think that that would have worked as well if you just start with the boobs on the screen. I right. think that the turnaround and the reveal makes it funnier. So yeah, you're always messing. Like the edit is, is really, I think the funnest part of making a movie for me is the editing process. I I have a great time with my editor who's done all three of my features now, but I also just love experimenting with some things. And then other times going, I'm not going to experiment. This is exactly how it has to be. And then when it works, you're just like, oh, it feels so good. And then there are times where you're so sure it has to be a certain way. And then she, Sarah Beth, will do it a different way. And then I watch it and I'm like, oh, this isn't going to work. It's not going to play. And then she she convinces me. And I'm like, you know what? This is better than what I would have done. Let's go with right. it and stuff. That's a, it's a fun process. Yeah. And I feel like the added bit that the computer looks like it's from like 1986 for some reason yeah. is also just incredible. <laughs> it's just incredible. I think too, like it's hard to tell, but so I don't think a lot of people see it, but um, the German that he's learning. So like the, the French in the beginning of the movie, the little CD cases that we made for it, it's, it's French for those French for people traveling alone, which I think is very funny and sad. And yep. then, cause that's what he's prep, prepping for. And then the German is called confrontational German. So like little <laughs> things like that are funny to me too. Like the fact that there's actually a set on German that's for confrontations is funny to me. So. Well, I mean that, that fits into the universe that you created in that film too, where like, it almost feels like everything is kind of in his head in a way where it's like, I mean yeah. like his message machine uh, yelling at him about, uh, you know, clearing the clearing like, it or like, you have no more making messages. fun of him. Exactly. No one else has left you a message. Exactly. Just exactly. like poking him. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's definitely. And I think my movies tend to have a bit of that in general. But yeah, he, uh, Casey definitely gets it from all sides. Of the, at least in the first half of that movie. Um. So uh, now we can move on to to Duel a little bit. And what? Uh. So yeah. When <laughs> to go back to where we started here? Uh. When I was getting the vaccine, I was in line with uh with the like co-founder of xyz films who produced uh who produced duel and uh, i remember talking with him uh nicest dude and he was like he's like yeah i work for this company we like make genre films and then i like looked into it and i was like oh man it's like done record done movies for like 
ex Craig, ex, uh, Craig Zollner and like Gareth Evans and Jim Cummings and, and all of this. Um, was there like a, like when they, I don't know how that relationship starts. Like, um, did they approach you wanting to do your next feature? And then when that, or like, however that relationship started, um, was it exciting to you getting to be a part of that sort of echelon of like cool independent filmmakers? Yeah, I mean, the specific sort of process of meeting producers on, on Duel was uh, my my manager and agents were setting me up with meetings at, at places where they thought maybe could border or sorry, uh, straddle the genre sort of space, but maybe leaned a little bit more independent film. Not to say that a genre film can't be independent, but I mean independent in the sense that it's more like awardsy or a little bit more prestige or whatever it is. And I had a lot of companies that just didn't get it or got it, but wanted changes made specifically to the third act of the film. And I just went through all these meetings and was like, I don't think any of these people are the right people. And that's okay. Like, we're still going to find them. And I I wasn't worried about it. Um, And then it was Panos Cosmatos who directed Mandy and Beyond the Black Rainbow. He's a friend of mine. We were at South by Southwest the year that self-defense played there. I think he was there because um, a friend of his was playing uh, a little music set or something like that. So he came out for that and he goes, Hey, I'm going to go hang out and have lunch, uh, over by the draft house, South Lamar with, uh, Nate Balotin, who's, uh, RM's partner at XYZ. Uh, you should come like they're good guys. And I go, okay, cool. So I went to this lunch meeting and by the end of it, I was like, I really like these people. And I mentioned what the movie was about. And Nate was like, I want to read that. If you want us, if you're okay with us reading it, I would love to check it out gave him the script and uh, they immediately asked if I could come in for a meeting at the the company here in LA. And I think my agent managers initially were, were not necessarily hesitant. They were just surprised because they're such a genre uh, uh, production company that that tends to be their space, horror, uh, action, stuff like that. And dual definitely on the page, even though it's sci-fi, it reads a little bit more, nuanced and subdued and maybe like I, I just think that they didn't think of them but I loved the enthusiasm of the company and everything they were saying just felt good and they didn't want me to make any changes they wanted to make the movie I wanted to make and so yeah it all worked out really really well and I got director's cut which I never had or final cut which I'd never gotten on a movie before and they kept every promise they made to me if if not more and I'm so happy that we went with XYZ and I, I would love to work with them again. Oh, that's awesome. That's super cool. And uh, I know you had to go film it in Finland. Was that like kind of was that like half uh, stressful, but also half exciting where you're like, oh, shit, I get to go, I guess, hang out in Finland for a month? I guess the so we shot in Finland because of COVID. Um, yeah. It was pre-vaccine when we were when we went uh, over to there uh, over there. And um, it wasn't that it was stressful or scary shooting in Finland. If anything, I was only excited about that. I thought that that was going to be a cool experience. And I think I knew by that point too, that it was going to benefit the look of the film and the feel of the film. I think the scary thing was shooting during COVID. (laughs) Like there was always, always this cloud over production where even though we were having good days, anything could happen. And one person shows up and gets everyone sick. And I mean, the reality is no one probably would have, uh, gotten seriously ill, 
but we couldn't take any chances. And I think people now, because we're used to going into grocery stores and concerts without masks and all this stuff, you're just seeing it more and more. It's like back to whatever the reality was beforehand. You forget how scary that time was. And particularly coming back and being one of the first films back to production, I think we had a lot of weight on our shoulders. Uh, but yeah, I loved shooting there and I loved that we ended up uh, in that country. And I would love to go back and shoot something else there someday too. Yeah, it was really yeah. cool. Yeah, it's a gorgeous, it's an absolutely gorgeous place. Um, were you, was there anything that kind of inspired uh, you with making that film like in a different way? Like, um, uh, like, in a, like when I, when I watched it, it reminded me almost of like a very like Soderbergh sort of style of, of film in a, in a lot of way. Um, and in a way that like, it's taking you on a journey that you really don't know where it's going to go. And um with that also i wanted to comment that i like that all three of your films you go into it thinking it's going to be one thing and without giving anything away it takes you not where you expect it to go you know and i'm curious with for you how much um that is on your mind when you're writing the script like do you do you have do you have like a i don't want to hit the expectation that someone might be thinking this is going to go when i'm writing this my overall idea is always to subvert expectations. Those are my favorite kind of films and stories. So it's not that I'm consciously saying, what can I do to fuck with the audience? But the stories mm-hmm. that I'm drawn to tend to subvert the expectation of where that initial concept is going to go. Um, like with Duel, I came up with the idea initially that I wanted to do something that involved cl- uh, an actor acting opposite themselves. And then I came up with the idea that there's this cloning procedure, but you can only have it done if you know you're going to die. Uh, and even that, I, I was like, I don't think that's enough. I feel like I need more, but I wasn't able to talk myself out of the idea either. And it wasn't until I came up with the question, what would happen if you go into remission and had the immediate answer? Well, of course, they're going to duel to the death to figure out who continues to live uh, as Sarah, that I was like, that's the movie. I knew that that was the movie. Um, no talking myself out of it. And I, immediately had the beginning, middle, and end of the movie too. So the ending never, it was never a um, fuck with the audience sort of thing. It always just felt like the natural conclusion to this specific story. I didn't think about how much it would throw people. Because uh, yeah. the people who don't like it really don't like it. But I can't imagine any other version of this movie that ends a different way and that's one of those things where you go, because in the testing, I didn't have a single person say anything about that except for one director. And that director and I have very, very different tastes, very different tastes. And so I was like, I'm okay. Like I'm making the yeah. choice that I want to make and I, I trust it and I know what that could be. Um, it only was once it started playing in front of people where I started hearing people go like, I don't really know that I love that ending. It wasn't going where I wanted it to go, but uh-huh. I'm okay with that too, because you don't get to say, oh, I want it to do this. It's where the storyteller is taking you. And I'm okay with that. When I watch movies and they don't go down the path that I'm expecting, even if it, it you're like, oh, I wish I could have seen that in some ways, I'm always more happy to see a version that I didn't expect because yeah, that's subverting expectations. That's more exciting to me. If you expect it to go a certain way, then I feel like that's boring very different films but what it what my um experience was reminded me of the first time i saw no country 
where I mean, I could totally see where I'm. I'm not saying we're on the same level, but like that in that middle sort of ending area. Yeah, some people hate that. Yeah, yeah. I remember certainly the first time I saw No Country, I was like, wait a minute, what? And then it, it, the, my first thought after that was, I need to see this again because yeah. I because you might have been, you know, you don't your brain's not ready for something to end. So yeah. Uh, so it just makes me makes me like certainly when I walked out of Duel, I was like, I like that. I think I need to see it again though. Like I, I mean, that's a great thing. Yeah. yeah. And I, I I was talking with a filmmaker friend of mine yesterday who I hadn't seen in a while. We went on a walk in the neighborhood and we got to talking about movies that maybe the first time you saw you didn't totally appreciate, but that you got value from each time. Yes. And specifically, I I consider Punch Drunk Love my favorite movie. Because I can watch it and find new things every time, uh, and I just think it's so beautiful and underplayed, and and then uh, like big at times. And the first time I saw it, I remember going like, "Fuck that movie! I hate that! <laughs> I just didn't get it." Yeah, I was too young or too inexperienced, and whatever it was, it just didn't connect with me, and it wasn't the movie I wanted it to be. And and then a few weeks later, I remember going like, "I kind of want to watch it again for some reason." Watched it again, and I was like, "I think I like this movie." And then the third time I watched it, I go, I think this is my favorite movie. (laughs) So (laughs) I love that that can happen. And the first time I listened to my favorite album is uh, Isis's, uh, uh, for I guess they're not their first full length, it's uh, Oceanic. And it was on Ipecac. And I remember that was a similar label to 31G where anything on Ipecac I loved. I was a huge Mike Patton fan, still am. And I bought that without listening to it at all. Just knew it was on Ipecac, put it on. And listened to it all the way through and was like, I'm not into this album. I just wasted 20 bucks or whatever it was. Yeah. And then the next night I listened to it again because I was just a, you're a kid and you spend all your money on it. And you go, well, I want to make sure that I get my value out of this thing. And then every time I listened to it, I realized more and more that not only did I really like it, like I loved it. And now yeah. to this day, it's still my favorite album. So I love when things do that. Totally. Um and as far I, I the few notes that I wrote for here, uh, it was tougher for to write notes for Duel because I saw it a couple of weeks ago, and like the other movies are kind of more fresher in my head yeah, right yeah. now. But um, but um, I was curious with uh, with Karen, is it Gillen? Is that how you say the last name? Gillen, Gillen yeah, yeah, yeah. With Karen Gillen, um, the, the like sort of like staccato rhythm in uh in how she delivers lines. Um, was that? Did you have enough? Did you have time to rehearse with that, or because uh, I imagine that's you know. Um, something that you have to like, war- you know, get used to doing when delivering lines. Like, h- how did that all come together? She did it on the day. I find that most of the actors that I work with tend to not really um, love rehearsal. Uh, that that loses, excuse me, that it loses a sense of uh, spontaneity. Not that the movies are spont- spontaneous by any stretch. If anything, they're kind of the opposite. They're very calculated. But even just saying lines for the first time, there is an excitement there, even if you're delivering it in a pretty flat sort of affectationless sort of way. So Karen was in that similar boat where she and I had conversations ahead of time, particularly about the differences between the two Sarahs. But no, she she learned on the day kind of with me and um, trusted me in the way that I wanted it delivered. Uh, and ran with it and made it her own as well. So yeah, no, we didn't rehearse any of that. That's all her kind of figuring it out on the spot. The first day, 
she didn't have a lot of dialogue. It was more video chat, like waking up in bed, there's blood everywhere, that kind of stuff. Second day yeah. was where she was really getting into it. So she at least got to ease into it, sort of. Got it. Got it. Um, and then this is just like a fun question, but when you look back on the experience now that you're some time removed from it, like if you were to try to pinpoint what your favorite aspect of making Duel was, do you know what that would be? Um, I think, man, so many things come to mind. A big overall was I was excited to be around people creating again because two years of being locked down or at that point, maybe a year and a half of being locked down and having that even just best friends, not being able to see them because they've got a baby or whatever it is, an immunocompromised person in their house. I, I really appreciated being back on set with real people. Um, and was something that I was as proud of as, as the script for duel, uh, scenes that I really love shooting that stand out. There's a support group scene near the end of the movie that I absolutely loved. There's a little t-shirt cameo with full of hell in that. Um, <laughs> just that coverage was really fun for me to do. And, um, yeah, the opening duel of the movie was really fun, but really, really challenging. So when we got through that, I felt like another weight off our shoulders sort of moment that was really nice. And that was the night, uh, one of those two nights was the night that we found out that Biden, uh, won in the election. And so we were also, everyone in Finland cared about the, and knew more about our government than we do even. That sure, I find. Yeah, so yeah. they, because the world cares because we affect their, their lives just as much as the people that we choose affect our lives here. So everyone just felt like, Oh my God, thank God. I felt like we maybe even did some sort of a shot after we finished that in honor of the fact that like yeah. Trump was out, but yeah, those Damn. are things that come to mind. Yeah. 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 For sure. Um, well, shit. Uh, let me hit you with the last question, which is, uh, when was the first time that you felt like you were doing the thing that you'd been working so hard towards? There's levels to that. Like, I think I could say that being a PA in my first writer's room was something where you go, okay, this isn't Urban Outfitters. This isn't the two weeks that I did at Target when I moved to LA. Uh, I'm not working in a restaurant anymore. I'm actually involved with something that's creating something. But um, going back to the Cub and Sundance, I think hearing that reaction now that we kind of thought or talked about it earlier and I'm remembering just how elated I was. I, I had the flu, was trying to stay away from everybody as best as I could, but I sat in that like little section of the audience and watched these these people la who are all hilarious and, and talented people laughing at something I made. Um, that's something that I'll probably remember for the rest of my life. And I think that it was a hugely validating and encouraging moment uh, and it's why I tell people all the time to try to make shorts if you can. Um, you learn so much, but you also, you get these little pockets of experience seeing something like that in a huge festival in front of all these cool people. Um, and then you can go off and make something else again. And, and I just, I like that, uh, that short connected with people the way that it did. It was a, it was a cool experience. Fuck yeah. I appreciate it, Riley. This has been awesome. Thank you for hanging Thanks, out man. with me and coming on. Yeah. Oh, of course. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Riley for coming on and thank you for listening. Reminder, there's a bonus episode available right now where Riley answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can hear that by going over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. 
All right. Take care of yourself and I will see you next week. Bye bye.